All right. I've told you this before, but I'll say it again. I grew up in a small town of about 900 people. And so my class size was around 30, 35. And when I was in junior high, I, I thought, or I didn't think, I wanted to play basketball. And so here I am, you know, with my, I don't know what kind of shoes those are. Got a smile on the face, and I had long hair at that time and flowing, and it was really good. And a basketball. <clears throat> so I thought I wanted to play basketball, and so, I mean, I just, um, all right, let's go do this. And little did I know that basketball wasn't going to be very good to me. Um, I blew out a knee playing basketball. Uh, during the game, I got punched in the stomach because I was being annoying to an opposing player, and it doubled me over. And then as a freshman, I made the varsity, but then as a senior, I rode the bench. And so <laughs> it wasn't the progression that it was supposed to go, right? And the coach just didn't see their finer points in my game. I don't understand what was going on. But um, he just didn't like me, I guess, for whatever reason. But all I knew as a junior hire is that I wanted to be a basketball player and I wanted to be a star. And so I did all that I could back in my day when we didn't have, anyway, I'm old. And so I did a lot of reading and researching and, I, and on occasion I would watch television these different players. And one player in particular that stood out to me was this guy named Pete Maravich and his nickname was Pistol Pete. And he went to LSU and, and then he, did three, uh, a couple of years in the NBA with three different teams. And one of the things that stood out to me with Pistol Pete was that he was an incredible, incredible, creative, um, actually they called him a really a court magician on how he could dribble and how he could pass. And then just he was an incredible shooter, a long range shooter. And he averaged uh, 44.2 points a game for his, he went, to LSU for four years, but back then you could only play three because freshmen weren't allowed to play in varsity. And so he did this his sophomore, junior, and senior year. He amassed over 3,600 points, and um, those things are still one of the top leaders in the NCAA. Knowing that, that it wasn't, um, he just did it for three years, he, there wasn't a three-point line at that time, and there was no shot clock, meaning that teams could stall whenever, but he still amassed all those points. I mean, he was an incredible, an incredible basketball player and um, later on became a Christian but died of a heart attack. But just an incredible, incredible basketball player. And so I wanted to be like Pistol Pete. And so I researched what did it take for him to get to where he was. One of the things I found out was that he loved um, basketball. He would shoot all the time and he would carry the basketball around with him all the time. And so I thought, well, if that's what it's going to take, then that's what I'm going to do. And so I got a basketball, and, and I am going to take it with me everywhere I go. So I'm walking, I'm going to dribble to the store or whatever it is, and I guess if I'm going to ride my bike, I'm going to start dribbling. Whatever it is, I'm just going to take this thing with me. Well, <laughs> you know, it's really hard to swim with the basketball. And it, when you take your basketball to church, it's just not... Back then, it just didn't look very good. And so taking my basketball everywhere became soon taking my basketball somewhere to then taking my basketball nowhere. 
And what I began to realize is that I really didn't love basketball. And, and so then my desire to do all that I could to obtain that um, really hit this. And I was left with a choice. When reality hit, I was left with this choice. Do I um, really love basketball or not? Am I willing to put up with the pain? Am I willing to put up with the ridicule? Am I willing to do all of that to obtain being a good basketball player or the, the star, whatever it is? And, and for me, it was no. And so then this went away. But I think that we do this, right? We do this a lot in our life. And I think that you experience this in your life as well, that we have, a, we have an idea, we have a goal, we have something that we're, we're going to aspire to. And we really want to go for it. And we find out what it's going to take to get there, and then we go for it. But at some point, right, reality begins to hit. And we're then faced with this question, is it really worth it, right? And so if it's a yes, then I'm going to continue on despite any hardships, roadblocks, you know, speed bumps, trials, whatever it is to obtain that. I want, and we're going through the Olympics right now, the Winter Olympics, and it's just a perfect time for this to happen, for this message, because it, you know, these athletes epitomize this. You know, they probably saw somebody and said, I want to do that, and so now... They've devoted their life in really, you know, for in, an ex, in obscurity for four years, have trained and pushed their body and, and did all this incredible things for what? For one particular moment in the spotlight, and then only one person is going to get that gold medal. But that's what they're going for. So for them, it's a huge, huge yes. But then if it's a no, right? Then we move on to something else. So what moves us there is that we're looking at that there is something of value that I want to obtain. And I will do whatever it takes to get there because this value is something that's greater than what I presently have. And if you would talk to the person who won a gold medal, Sean White, for instance, in the uh, half pipe. And you would say, Sean, was it worth it for you? And, you know, and, and this plays out every time you talk to somebody who um, won a gold medal. And they would say, absolutely. And whether it's, you know, a dance competition, whether it's a speech competition, it doesn't have to be sports, in anything, you would talk to somebody, and if they've done the pinnacle, you would say, was it worth it? All of the tears all the early mornings, late nights, and hardships, and trials, and sore body, and muscles, and all of that, was it worth it? And they would say, absolutely. It was worth it. And, and I believe that it's true for that moment. But then what happens? Right? It doesn't last. And then you pursue something else. And then you pursue something else. And it's just like a Snickers candy bar. They claim that you're not yourself if you're hungry. And so Snickers satisfies. <laughs> but it doesn't, does it? Because you need another one. And then you need another one. And it just keeps going and going and going. So the question we're going to ask this morning is really, is it worth it? 
And for us, speaking about church world, knowing God, loving Him, enjoying God is really right. The only thing that will last, it's the only thing that will satisfy, it's the only thing that will give peace, and that is really that, that thing that we look towards, that, that, that gold medal moment, is that. And I was reading an article in the USA Today that talked about um, a mom of uh, the young man who won a silver, I think it was, in the uh, speed skating event. And she said this, because they had sacrificed a ton, and she said this. She said, "Um, when you love your children, you will do anything for them. And I think that, that we can identify that in a lot of ways, right? And how much more does our Heavenly Father who has adopted us as sons, adopted us as children. If, if, and we see this played out all the time with people that have kids in club sports or, or whatever it is, dance, speech, it doesn't matter. Parents will do, right, for the most part, um, you'll do anything for them to obtain that, that goal. How much more does the God in heaven would do for you? as an adopted son, as an adopted daughter. The Bible says that we get a taste of this while on this earth, but the best part is really waiting for us in heaven. And that's the hope that we have, that the God of the universe will love me, that the God of the universe will never leave me, he'll never forsake me, he's adopted me, right? Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation to those who are his children. He gives freedom to live our life And then there's peace, deep, deep peace that's beyond all understanding. And we get some of that now, but we get all of that when we're in heaven. John 6 talks about that Jesus says, I am the bread. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And then in the chapter later, he goes, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has, the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them, talking about the Holy Spirit that will come on them. And so in Luke chapter, tonight, Luke chapter 9, which, which we're going to look at this morning, is that we begin to first understand that this is really what begins that dialogue where following Jesus is not going to be easy. That following Christ is not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And we may not always understand why. We may not always understand the timing for particular events and things in our life. But what he wants us to understand is that there's great hope at the end of the road. And with this hope in place, there's a basis for faith and there's a basis for love. I want you to, to look at Colossians 1. Three through five, and I'll just read it for you. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And so that's what they've heard about. They have incredible faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people. And so the faith and the love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which we have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. And so this hope that we have that one day we're going to be with him, that one day all of this 
ugliness of this earth is going to be past. And all the pain that I feel in my body and all of the hurt that I feel inside is going to be wiped away. And I get to be with him for eternity. And that's the hope that we have, right? That's the thing that we look towards. That's the thing that I'm grasping for. Whenever there's trials, whenever there's bumps, whenever there's things that I don't like or don't understand or there's hurt and there's pain, discouragement, I'm tired, I keep pressing on. I keep going forward because of that hope that I have. It gives me that springs for this faith and that's why I can love other people and love God because of that hope that we have. And so we understand that right now we have these present realities as a disciple that, first of all, that we're going to experience some of this now, right? Some of this blessing that it is to be a child, to be a son, to be a daughter. We're going to experience some of that now. But we're also going to experience the full part of it um, when we're in heaven. So it's a now, not yet type of thing. So we're not, we're not yet going to experience all of it, but we will. And so that's the hope that we have. And then the third thing that we live under is that um, the forces of this world, Satan and his demons, they still have a presence on this earth, and they still are going to wreak havoc for however long it's going to be until Jesus comes down and says it's time to be done. And so that's the present reality that we live in. And so then Luke spends the first eight chapters of his book, and he talks about who is Jesus. Who is this man, this God-man that came down to earth? And then in chapter 9, we see this moment where it begins to shift. And we read in these stories that um, you get to this point where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, who do the people say that I am? And, and they list out several different things. And then he goes, who do you say I am? And then Peter offers this, and he says, you are God's Messiah. You are the one that's going to deliver us. And that marks a significant shift. And now, for this moment, publicly states to the readers that there is this, um, that Jesus is the one who is now the Messiah, the one that's been talked about in the Old Testament and all the prophets, that Jesus is the one. And then that, from this point forward, in the nine chapters after, leading up to Christ's crucifixion, he talks about and says, follow me. And then he lays out what that looks like. Incredible, incredible um, structure with Luke. And so what's what we're going to look at this morning is, is it worth it? Is he worth it? So what does it mean to follow him as a disciple? And the first thing is this. Is that what it's going to take to follow him as a disciple is this idea of moving from I am number one to I am is number one. So there's a difference, right? There's a difference. This is you and I. And then this is Jesus. And so in order for us to be a disciple, in order for us to, this is what it's going to take. We need to move from I am number one to I am is number one in my life. At the end of chapter 9, uh, Luke shares three, 
or shares a story about three eager young men who want to be a follower of Christ, or they're willing to follow him. And Jesus um, does some very, um, his responses to them are very short and they're very blunt. But he wants to convey to them and to those that are reading the seriousness and what it's going to take to follow him and this new priority that needs to be set in our life. And so when they say the different things, the three different things, he, he says to them, wait a minute, you're not going to do that. I need to be first in your life. And, and he's not saying that those things that he's talking about, like going and saying goodbye to family and burying his dad, is not important. It needs to be done. But he, what he says is, I want you to understand that because there's two of the stories that it says, Lord, first let me do this. And Jesus says, no, there can't be any but first. In, in my economy, it's I must be your first priority. This, this needs to happen right here. When you're saying yes to me, you're saying yes to this, that I am now going to be your first priority in your life. And then he goes on in, in, a, in a passage and um, in chapter 9, verse 62, he says, No one who puts a hand to the plow looks back and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, I must be your first priority. And this is what it means when you're going to be in my kingdom that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. You know, when we think about farming and we think about plowing before the age of GPS and that kind of thing, you, you need to be focused on where you're going, Right? You need to be focused. It's hard for you to look back and still maintain a straight line or still maintain that you're not going to get rid of the corn or the beans or whatever it is that you're plowing in, right? Or what, that's not the right term, but um, you just need to go straight. You can't look behind and do that, right? So you have to look forward. And that's what he's getting here. That's the analogy that he's using. Um, and so following Jesus is no different, that you can't look behind you need to keep looking forward. You need to keep looking at Jesus. Now, we might look at that and go, well, wait a minute. Is he saying that, that, um, that if I don't do this, then, then I'm not going to be, um, I'm not going to qualify for the kingdom? Well, that's not what he's meaning here. Because we all know that nobody is qualified to be in his kingdom because it's all by grace, right? It's all by grace. It's everything that Christ has done. It's nothing that we have done. And so none of us are qualified. And it's all by grace. But he says what, what's, what's really going on here is that you can, uh, because the definition of fit for the kingdom really means here is that you're going to be useful for the kingdom. And so what he's saying here, unless that you delight in Jesus, unless you begin to resemble him, unless you're committed to him and you're serving him and you're knowing him, and that is your absolute highest priority, if that's not going on, then you are not going to be a, a good conduit for the healing power of Jesus in other people's life. And, and you're not going to be useful in ministry. And so Jesus' message to you and I is this, and to the disciples is, I have to be the first priority in your life. Or you're not a learner of mine. If you don't put me first in your life, it's not that you're not, that you're not just uncommitted, and I'm reading this, you're not just uncommitted or lazy, disorganized or done disciplined. No, 
you just don't get it, right? You don't really see who I am and what I've done, and you don't understand the meaning of my life and work. And he goes on to say, you need to wake up. And so he illustrates this. And I love this illustration. And it talks about that um, if somebody were to come to me, and I'm just going to put my name in here because the other name you wouldn't recognize, but I'm going to put my name in here. And someone come up to me and goes, come on in, Kevin, but I want you to stay out. So um, we'll just put my name. I'm knocking on the door, and you open the door, and you say, come in, Kevin, but I want Andres to stay out, right? So he's splitting. Come in, Kevin, but I want Andres to stay out. And it's a bit of a problem, right? It's a bit of a problem when we, when we act that way because I can't separate the two. I am both. I am Kevin and I am Andres. It's not like one part of me is Andres and one part of me is Kevin. So when you say, Kevin, you can come in, Andres, you stay out, that my body splits in half and one stays out and one goes in. That just doesn't work, right? So if you want me to come in, you have to have all of me come in. So Kevin Andrews is going to come in, not just Kevin, not just Andrews. And that's what it is like with Jesus. To say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sins, answer my prayers, do this for me, do that for me, but don't be absolute master of my life. Don't be Jesus or don't be Savior or say, Jesus, Savior, come in. But don't be Lord. I want you to stay out. Right? So he's saying, um, sorry. These two things are together. And we're, not, we're saying, you know, don't just say, Savior, I want the Savior. I want to be saved. I want to be in heaven. But I don't want you to be Lord of my life. He's saying, no, that's not going to work. It has to be both because that's what it is. You can't separate the two. He's all Savior and he's all Lord. He's Lord because he's Savior and he's Savior because he's Lord. And that's what it means when you say yes to him. It's not something where you can just think intellectually and say, this is what I believe, and then not give him complete control of your life. And really what that looks like that Luke says is that when he says the dead bury the dead, it's not, that's physically impossible, right? But he's talking about spiritual deadness. And that's really what it is in our life when we say yes to one and not yes to the other. So that's the first thing is that we begin to set a different priority. The second thing is this. Whoops. It's not just bending, but a complete melting and reshaping of my life. Um, a disciple is not somebody that just sets a new priority. A disciple is someone that finds a complete new identity. And we, we've talked about this, that, that when you say yes to him, that there's this complete new identity that begins to happen in your life. And what we want to do, right, and we see that in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 20, or 23 through 25. And let me just read that. He says, Jesus, uh, let's see. Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny 
themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying to us here is that it may seem like that first part is setting new priority, but then we'll begin to understand that it says, when whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up in my cross and follow me. And then those next two sentences are explaining what that means. Whoever will save their life, or whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And so this word, right, is not really talking about our physical life that we're trying to save. It's really talking about this inner life, the self part. And he's talking about um, that your old way of identifying, your old way of trying to gain a sense of self needs to end. It needs to die. It needs to stop. Right? In a sense, you need to die to it. And what he's saying is, I can give you a whole new um, sense of identity. I can give you a whole new identity, and, and you can get a whole new true self, and then you can begin to build your life on me, and you can, you're, you're going to remove anything that you were trying to do to build yourself on gaining the world or whatever it might be. He wants you to die to that. Die to trying to fill that void in your life, dying to self and using self to fill self, if that makes sense. And so gaining things from the world is, right, the normal way that we try to, um, to, 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 to get really self, to fill that void. And some people would say that, well, if you, um, if you have an incredible career, that that's the way that you really have this identity, or it might be money, or it might be being married, or it might be having children, or it might be um, whatever having the new Google Pixel 2, right? Or whatever it is. Whatever it is. That's what the world begins to say, that that's what it is for you to be a sense of identity and a sense of self. And Jesus is saying here in Luke that when you gain the whole world, what good is it? I mean, you can't take it with you. It's not going to help you when you stand before the judge, which is God. And so instead of trying to gain the whole world, or to gain self by gaining things on this world, what he's saying is, is, I want you to build your life and everything on me, on who I am, who God is, and what he's done in your life through Jesus Christ, and now who you are and, what that, and the hope that we have to be in heaven. Because he says this, you were built to know me. And so it's not, right, this is a piece of solder. And it's not that one, it's not, um, it's not just bending our life to Jesus, right? When you put fire to this, what, what happens? It begins to melt. And there's a complete melting and reshaping that goes on. And if you were to put it in a... Um, I, uh, 
I couldn't do this because I, I don't think I can bring fire in here, but I, w- I wanted to do it. But um, it comes out completely different, right? And this is a little cheesy. I know it's a heart, but just bear with me. But that's what happens, right? It's a complete melting and reshaping of your identity. It's not bending, right, so that it's there and all right, I'm just going to bend part of it and go this way, but I'm still here, right? No, it's a complete melting and a complete reshaping of who you are, and this is what you're going to base your identity on. And then, so that's the first thing is um, a new priority. The second thing is you have this new identity, and then here's the third, is that two and one are not going to happen without a radical experience of mercy, of grace, of love. I mean, these are not going to happen unless you have this radical experience of grace, of mercy, and love. Um, and so um, the key to all of this is the key to setting this new priority for us to, to put Jesus number one, the key for us to have this identity in our life, right, is beginning to understand what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. In Luke 9, um, in verses 52, they are set off to go to this Samaritan village and the village doesn't want to receive Jesus. And the disciples go, well, you know, they were so angry at that that they said, can we call down fire to wipe out this village? And Jesus doesn't scold the Samaritans for not welcoming him. He scolds the disciples for what they wanted to do. And we see Jesus, when the soldiers come to him and they're going to arrest him, he doesn't call down fire figuratively to, to get rid of them. What does he do, right? One of the disciples chops off an ear and he heals that ear of one of the soldiers. And when he's on the cross and they're laughing and poking fun and humiliating and all of that, and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And so there's this whole new thing that is happening, this new um, that Jesus is saying is how you need to act. And what you need to understand is that I'm not, I am coming, right? I am being obedient to God so that all of this that needs to go on you and it needs to go on other people is going now on me. I'm taking the wrath of God on me. And I'm dying on the cross for you. He's the one, right? has taken on the judgment of God on himself. He's the one that got what we deserved. And when we begin to understand that, this is the answer to all of the things in our life, is that when we begin to understand that, and we have this incredible, like Peter and like others in the Gospels, when we're overwhelmed, when we're overwhelmed by that, and we experience his radical grace, and we experience his radical mercy, and we experience his radical love. That is when things begin to change. You can't just say, well, I'm going to do this. You have to experience that for it to displace what you're trying to put as an idol in your life. Because now you've found something better. And that is Jesus.
Um, let me read this to you. It's coming from a commentary. It says, I've heard people say, you're right. I probably should change my identity, build my identity on God. But you can't change your identity by just deciding. It's not an act of the will. A person can't just say, you know I'm having a problem in my life because I built my identity on my parents' expectations. I think I'll build my identity on my career and accomplishments. You can't do that. That's not transformation, that's acting. There's only one way that the root can be changed, and that is by an experience of love. Only when your heart experiences love from a new source beyond anything it's ever known before will your heart start to move toward the source and begin to be deeply changed. I mean, that's where it starts. That's where it starts to be overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus is taking your punishment for you and experience that. And then from there, you can begin to develop this, right, that this is now melted and reshaped in this new identity that you have. And then you begin to set this new priority. That it's now I am not number one. It's now I am the capital I am number one in my life. Real quickly, here's three, three practical things about being a disciple. The first of all is this, is that discipleship is not an option. Right? It's not an option. It's not something where you say, there's not two kinds of Christians. It's not the regular Christian and then the people who are disciples. That's not the case, right? It's if you're a Christian, if you say yes to Jesus, then you are a disciple. You are a lifelong learner you are saying yes to him and you're saying yes to his lordship in your life. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that even though it's not an option, it is also a journey. And we see that in this chapter where Jesus is taking his disciples and he sets, and scripture uses the word resolutely, and Jesus sets his heart to go now to um, the point where he's going to be crucified. And he sets on his journey. And then these next nine chapters are talking about what it means to follow him. But he says it's, it's a journey. But first of all, you need to make the decision to leave. And that decision to leave your old life, your old self, right? You need to be overwhelmed and all of that is what we talked about. I'm giving up my right, my right to self-determination. I'm taking my hands off the wheel. I am being open-handed about my life to you, God. There's no ifs here. I'm going to obey you if you do this. It's just simply obey. I'm simply going to love you. I love this phrase. You're not saved because you're a disciple. You're a disciple if and only if you understand what he's done to save you. This order, right? It's not I will go to the cross if you follow me. It's I went to the cross for you. Now follow me. Last thing. Is that when we um, become more and more like Christ, and this is part of a life, then things will begin to happen. We'll see some fruit. We'll see maturity begin to happen. And we'll become a more gentle kind of people. We will be more gentle to people that... Um, don't believe like we believe. We'll become more gentle to people that maybe are not as far along in the spiritual journey as we are. 
We'll become more kind. We'll become um, less judgmental. And I would just say, is that happening in your life? Is there more fruit beginning to happen? And so this is what Jesus is saying here. This is what it's going to cost for you to say yes to him. And he's saying, I want you to know, right? Remember, go clear back to that illustration of the basketball. You are saying yes to him and you're weighing this out, right? And then reality hits and life happens and there's tragic things and it's discouraging and as a husband and wife, you fight or your kids are going out of control or whatever it is. And you're saying, is it worth it? Is he worth it? And I just want to say to you that yes, he is. Because this hope that we have in heaven of being with him is far greater than anything that you can gain on this earth and hope to have. If nothing else, remember this. This word disciple. That's what we're to be. If you think about it, if you look at this word, where does the eyes go in the word? There's second and fifth. So if you think about it, I know this is kind of hokey. It's cheesy. But it's help, it helps me, right? When you think about being a disciple, remember that the I is second and the I is fifth. Jesus is first. The I am is number one. And the eyes are always second and fifth. Here's the other thing. You can't spell disciple without the I. And so the I is necessary, right? I it needs to be there. God loves you. God treasures you. God wants you to be everything that you can be in Christ, through Christ. And so those are two things, right? When we think about discipleship, when we think about disciple, remember that the I, right, is always second and fifth or somewhere along there. And the I, it needs to be in this word. We're going to close with a song this morning. And I, I'm guessing, I, I don't know where you guys are at, and we don't do this very often. Um, but I want to give you an opportunity to um, respond this morning to the Holy Spirit and his leading. Respond to Luke chapter 9. Respond to this, this really a hard saying. And it's not me saying this. This is what God, through his son Jesus, is saying to you and I. This is what it means to be my disciple. I want you to weigh that cost. And maybe you've built your life on mom and dad's faith, or maybe it's been, I've gone to church all my life, and I really haven't been overwhelmed by him. And maybe you're just saying this morning, I need to do that. I'd be willing to pray with you, um, whatever form or fashion. And there's some people in the back that will be willing to pray for you too. So just take this time when we sing to just do, um, connect with God this morning and talk with him. Where do I need to change? Let's sing together.